I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. We're listening to Mr. Welfare Man, written by Curtis Mayfield for the 1974 movie Claudine and performed by Gladys Knight and the Pips. They just keep on saying I'm a lazy woman. Don't love my children and I'm our show today is In the Name of the Family, The Moral Uses of Welfare. My guest via Skype is University of Sydney sociologist and political scientist Melinda Cooper, whose most recent book is Family Values, published by Zone Books. She's also the author of Life as Surplus, Biotechnology and Capitalism in the Neoliberal Era. The father of the modern welfare state is said to be Lester Frank Ward, an American sociologist who produced his major work in the midst of what is called the Gilded Age, 1870 to 1900, which incidentally dovetails with the end of Reconstruction and the inception of Jim Crow laws. He believed, quote, a sociology which intelligently and scientifically directed the social and economic development of society should institute a universal and comprehensive system of education, regulate competition, connect the people together on the basis of equal opportunities and cooperation, and promote the happiness and freedom of everyone. Unquote. Sounds nice. But neither Ward nor the Gilded Age is our focus, though now 100 years later it appears we might have returned to the Gilded Age. Instead, we're going to look at the work of Chicago School neoliberals Milton Friedman and Gary Becker. Now, Friedman is generally well known and recognized as influential in economic policy in the U.S. and has been rightfully sullied by his association with the murderous Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet. But what about Gary Becker? Gary Becker was an American professor of economics and sociology at the University of Chicago, who has been described as the most important social scientist in the past 50 years by the New York Times. And he, like Friedman before him, was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1992 and received the United States Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2007 under George W. Bush. Neoliberals like Becker and Friedman oppose any form of state welfare for individuals and instead insist that the family, as they describe it, must serve as the primary support mechanism in a democratic and free market society. So, what's wrong with welfare? Let's begin to explore that question with a brief history lesson on the inception of the welfare state. Here's Melinda Cooper. which has internalized and socialized the principles of insurance. So the state becomes insurer of last resort 
the various risks of social life. First of all, that that applies to the workplace. So uh, unemployment, uh, workplace accidents were very important in the history of the welfare state. Illness, old age, and then that extends to the whole of social life to people who aren't working but are somehow connected to the worker, and then beyond that to people who are dependents. So there was this first experiment in 1880 that became a model throughout the world and first uh, across the Western European states you have uh, various countries adopting either comprehensive social insurance programs or bits and pieces over the years. It arrives quite late in the United States. So 1935, uh, the New Deal and the Social Security Act is really uh, the turning point. So in the 1880s, I mean, part of the argument of the book is that there, there is an echo today. There is, you know, it's it's not really metaphorical to say that uh, there's, you know, something about our experience today that resonates with the Gilded Age, because in the Gilded Age um, there are charitable forms of relief, public relief. Uh, in many respects, uh, during that period. Uh, had diminished, and there was a real emphasis on uh, the principles of personal responsibility for your economic security, but along with that, uh, family responsibility. And this is a principle that I make a lot of in the book because uh, it dates back to the the poor laws, the Elizabethan uh, poor laws, and I argue that it has everything to do with the history of economic liberalism and therefore neoliberalism, but we keep forgetting that. Yeah, and so, the poor laws you say were six, it's 1601, Elizabethan England? That's right. Uh, so the poor laws were, well, it was a first kind of um, uniform system of public relief, very meager public relief that was introduced in, in England. There was mass unemployment, hmm. uh, people wandering around from parish to parish, uh, begging, uh, vagrants. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, what this, uh, what these laws introduced was the idea that there should be this uniform right to a meager amount of uh, uh, re- parish relief uh, uh, upon, but but contingent upon this series of conditions. Right, right. All kinds of conditions, but the primary condition, the first to be triggered, was that first of all, the parish will set about uh, uh, contacting your family members. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can go in every direction. It can be the adult children of, uh, of pe- elderly parents. It can be parents. It can be grandparents. The, the, the relations of kinship have changed uh, over time. And we're going to force them to look after you. Mm-hmm. And once, only once we've exhausted all those possibilities of familial support down to the last crumb, then we will give you a little crumb from the back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and these laws were adopted word for word by the early American colonies. They were incorporated into state laws in the early American Republic, and they remain, in many cases, they remain on the books in American states, and they survived well into the 20th century. And this is what social reformers like your uh, Lester Ward uh, were fighting against because they had to... um, supplant this uh, very old, uh, very punitive system of poor relief uh, 
uh, and they had to argue against it in order to introduce this idea that people shouldn't have a right to some kind of guaranteed benefit from the state. Mm-hmm. In a sense, I see the project of neoliberalism as an attempt to not simply undo social insurance, though it is that too. Um, and, you know, in, in extremists, they would like to un- undo social insurance completely. Um, and they would like to restore this principle of family responsibility for welfare. Uh, what they end up doing often is taking the institutional and bureaucratic structures of the New Deal welfare state and making them uh, work as a kind of infrastructure for enforcing family responsibility. Yeah, they, uh, as you point out throughout, and this is not a surprise to many of us, they become just a punitive uh, aspect of the bureaucracy. Yeah, so a lot of money is being spent often on these programs, but a a lot of money is being uh, spent trying to detour uh, support obligations. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Melinda Cooper joins us to discuss the rhetorical and political uses of family values by both neoliberals and social conservatives, closer to a same-sex union than we might suppose. Guys like me, we had it made. Those were the days. So this is the interesting contradiction, or it's a contradiction, I suppose, just in its on its face as it moves towards trying to achieve a particular end. So you can say... Um, you're spending a lot of money, uh, and a, but your goal is to no longer spend any money, right? So, you know, your goal is to absolutely have zero state uh, involvement in social insurance, social care, social, you know, things in which uh, you want to offload to kinship relations, as you say. And, and that's an interesting aspect that I think we continue, as you say, continue to forget about what, what it is that that matters um, in social organization. You know, it's like the more we, the more we do these things, you know, they're sort of self-fulfilling prophecies of creating bad environments, you know, creating these negative aspects of society that we then create punitive responses to, um, you know, in order to, again, take, take that money out of it, you know, to not have to spend any money on it. It's it's just kind of, it's that circular creation that we're not able to really speak very well about. The actual neoliberal kind of legal and economic scholars, the Chicago school neoliberals or the Virginia school neoliberals, they're not really able to speak about it either. They don't have that kind of um, self-reflexive intelligence, I guess. So I, I, I think they really... They really do want to retrench the welfare state and and uh, save money. So to make it um, as um, if 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 not retrench it completely, to make it as self financing as possible. So to replace public services with user fees, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. To replace uh, prisons with fines. This is Gary Becker's idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they're, they're really sincere about wanting to kind of eliminate the, the fiscal costs of the welfare state. But um, there's a circularity to, to the logic in the sense that there will always be people who, uh, for them, are unwilling to com- comply, but, you know, from my point of view, are unable to comply. Mm-hmm. 
who cannot be self-reliant because there aren't, you know, the employment conditions available to be uh, self-reliant. And this is where uh, neoliberals have this disavowed relationship with uh, various kinds of new social conservatism. So when it comes to workfare or prisons, they end up in practice, their policies end up meaning um, uh, uh, that they uh, need to collaborate with new paternalists and with new neoconservatives because they need an increase in uh, uh, enforcement and corrections and prisons um, because this is this is the the end result of their policies. Uh, so you might say neoliberals consciously manipulate a social conservative ideology um, and understand the ideology uh, and understand how to make use of it. Uh, within the political framework? I don't think they're just manipulating it. Mm-hmm. Like they, what my argument is that this principle of family responsibility mm-hmm. has always been part of the liberal economic tradition. Yeah. It just gets continuously forgotten, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly by critics on the left, mm-hmm. but also by neoliberals themselves. So I think this explains why I find Gary Becker so interesting. Mm-hmm. He's saying it again and again. What is really fascinating is that people read Gary Becker and he's screaming family responsibility on each page mm-hmm. and gets completely elided and it's beyond me. So Gary Becker says family, fam, the institution of the family is how we don't spend money as the state. Yeah. So the, yeah. the family itself becomes, again, the, the independent um, actor. The family itself becomes an entrepreneurial state of its own um, I just and and yet at this point in time we've exploded that also, so that each individual is the entrepreneurial act, actor from man to woman to child, um, to try to create these these separate um, uh, these separate containers of economic action. Um, it's it's both both and it's mm-hmm, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's the one and the other. Mm-hmm. I mean. There's almost an elision within neoliberal thinking between the individual and the family. Mm. You know, they accept social change. They just, you know, do a lot of work trying to recontain it. So they they do accept and they do acknowledge that women are working now mm. and so that the individual economic man is also a woman. And they do, of course, want to, uh, uh, want to see same-sex marriage, uh, recognized. So you can also imagine a scenario where there's, uh, say, a lesbian uh, couple where they will be making the same marital responsibility argument about these two women. So saying that uh, you're an individual, okay, one of, uh, uh, and you're a couple. Uh, one of you in this couple falls sick. Uh, the state uh, has a right to oblige you to look after your partner. Uh, in lieu of the state spending money on your partner. So I think there's this level of uh, uh, plasticity to their idea of the family, that what remains, they're able to adapt to changing Mm -hmm. sexual morals. They recontain it within this figure of marital or familial responsibility. Right. And that's that's also um, um, an uh, an order of force, that within the family and within this, what you just described, actually, the state as compelling you to, yeah. to act a particular way. On the one hand, it's all free contract, but on the other hand, they're saying, well, there are these non-contractual obligations that are absolutely necessary to an imminent to the, the free market order, right. and these relationships 
primarily kinship relationships. And they're quite prepared to say the state, if you don't take charge of your uh, personal responsibilities, your familial responsibilities, your dependence, your uh, sexually transmitted diseases, your whatever, well, then the state has every right uh, to intervene and enforce them. It's time for a break. We'll hear Welfare Mothers from Neil Young and Crazy Horse off of the 1979 album Rust Never Sleeps. More with Melinda Cooper on the moral uses of welfare by neoliberals and social conservatives when Interchange returns. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is In the Name of the Family, and my guest is Melinda Cooper, whose new book is Family Values, Between Neoliberalism and the New Social Conservatism. In what follows, we try to distinguish between these two political designations, but your host seems pretty thick-headed about it. Yeah, so that is where you walk into the, the, the marriage between neoliberals and neoconservatives. It sounds like neoliberals are neoconservatives in their own personal response to sexual freedom, to, to the freedom of basically women, um, yeah, the freedom of minorities as well. Uh, so it does sound like, neo- again, this is where, where we're, we're continuing to sort of circle around these ideas of uh, a particular class of rulers, right? Our, our white supremacist oligarchs keep popping up and their policy minions who support them, right? Who prop up the social structure that serves white supremacy. And it's one of those things that it gets, it gets troubling to talk about because it seems like you're just beating a dead horse when you talk about white supremacy. But the more we sort of look at how these policy responses uh, come from this era, come from the responses to these new freedoms, right? So we go back to the Gilded Age again and see the new freedoms uh, for African-Americans, you know, the new freedoms that women are trying to, to, I want to vote, I want to not be married, and I don't want my husband to take my property, my land, my, I don't want to not be a non-person, right? Social death becomes social life, 
And it seems to me that neoliberals want to recreate social death for most of the population. But they're not, um, I mean, they do end up, and there is a reason why they end up always kind of uh, uh, making these alliances with neoconservatives, mm -hmm. but they're not neoconservatives. So the reason why they're upset about no-fault divorce, they're upset about uh, single women going on welfare, they're upset about... Uh, gay men having promiscuous sex and then expecting the government to, to fund safe sex programs or to fund their health care is because, not because they have any moral problems with these uh, particular kind of relationships, but because these people enter into these relationships voluntarily, they're consensual, but then uh, they expect the ex so-called externalities, the problems that arise that might be uh, children <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, um, or, you know, AIDS, they expect these problems to be taken in charge by the state. Mm -hmm. So this, this is their critique of right. sexual freedom. Well, I, so, so I, don't, I don't mean to push on you here in the sense that to me those, and I don't want to call them specious, I don't know these people, right? I don't know what they're... they're oh, specious. You what? think it's hypocritical? Yeah, yeah, I think I think it serves the agenda that you're talking about, right? So to me, if you're cognizant of the kind of agenda that you're promoting, right? Even if you say I don't want the government to pay money, you're mean, you mean you don't want to pay taxes or you don't want to you, yeah. you know. and so it's very personal. Uh and it it can't just be that you only want to keep your money. You want to keep the world as it is where you have the power and strength to have your money serve you and your family, I guess, your, your particular dependents, and you want the rest of the world to not. And I just, I just have a hard time separating the talk of like financial economic talk from the moral talk. Ultimately, there is a moral philosophy there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there is, and I can go into more detail mm -hmm. about that. But I don't think it's the same as the neoconservatives or the religious conservatives. So the conservative philosophy is that um, this is a transgression of moral order. This is right. an affront to uh, uh, social order. This will undermine social foundations. So it's a kind of transcendental Argument. The moral philosophy of the neoliberals is that uh, you are responsible for every kind of risk that you choose to, to ta right. take on. Um, uh, the moral philosophy is also um, not often picked up by, by uh, uh, people looking at neoliberalism, but again, it's this principle of um, marital or familial responsibility so that if you're not personally responsible for uh, the risks that you expose yourself to, yourself to, then your partner is, or your parents are, or someone in your family is. So that they figure the familial responsibility as the kind of uh, first line of uh, defense. And if you don't internalize all of your kind of problems and all the costs you generate uh, within the, the institution of the family, uh, then you are anathema to them. If you expect the state to, to deal with uh, your childbearing or your um, sexually transmitted diseases. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Melinda Cooper joins us to discuss the rhetorical and political uses of family values by both neoliberals and social conservatives closer to a same-sex union than we might suppose. Guys like 
like me, we had it made. Those were the days. Well, I think part of the problem for me is the state doesn't exist at, at zero. Right. So so part of the issue is that this this kind of philosophizing begins, as we all do, in the middle and valorizes the particular forms it already has. You can only kind of dismiss them as hypocrites. Someone like Milton Friedman was opposed to conscription. He was in favor of the decriminalization of drugs, of prostitution, uh, Richard Posner and Thomas Phillipson wrote a book in favor of the decriminalization of, uh, you know, sodomy, bathhouses, their prostitution, they're against the quarantine measures that some of um, Reagan's advisors wanted to bring, uh, wanted to implement uh, at the height of the AIDS crisis. Right. Gary was against mass incarceration. So it's it's not only hypocritical, it's just that there's um, a blind spot in their thinking that means that they're, they're unable to perceive just how dependent their policy prescriptions are on a certain kind of moral, familial principles of obligation in practice. Hmm. The blind spot, again, is, an, is a nice way to, I, I'm not going to, I keep wanting to say it lets them off the hook. And they're not, again, I don't understand a blind spot from people that we have to recognize as being incredibly intelligent human beings, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, um, so it's, I just have a problem allowing incredibly intelligent human beings to get away with not understanding the moral consequences. I think we're in agreement. I mean, the only thing. <laughs> saying is that they're not social conservatives. Right, 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 right. So, yeah, I understand. To say, like, uh, Posner and Philipson in their book on AIDS, which is fascinating, I mean, they begin, they have have what looks like an absolutely kind of libertarian position on sexuality, but it's not that straightforward. You know, they begin by, by saying, you know, we don't agree with William Bennett and all these people, you know, we don't. I think uh, homosexuality should be criminalized, and yet we don't think uh, safe sex education or uh, health care for low-income uh, uh, AIDS patients should be funded by the state. Right. And, you know, there's incredible passages in that book where they're saying, well, yeah, it does look like low-income black women don't really value life much you know right. they're prepared to, uh, i mean right. so they know, they know what they're saying you know they yeah know yeah they do know what they're saying and that's that's my issue like that's just what i would um, and here we're back to my understanding of what villainy is it just frustrates me i guess and it's hard to have a conversation where you don't get stuck on um the economics of these questions uh, as opposed to as you say being able to see one once policies are implemented life changes for people and then yeah. they begin to call them certain kinds of people after they force that, them to be certain kinds of people. <laughs> and then the authoritarian response kicks in yeah. and they're like, oh, surprise, surprise. Right, right, right. There is an agreement here with the sociology that says we can construct beings within environments. You know, this is a Marxist materialist perspective as well, right? Where we say this is a constructed world and beings are constructed as well. There is no quote unquote freedom of markets. There is no freedom act, you know, no actors are free. And they recognize this too, right? 
Um, so they have to recognize that there's, there is a certain way to structure the world or attempts to structure the world. We call these things um, political persuasions, left, right, progressive, conservative, neoliberal. Um, they all seem moral to me. It's time for another break. This is Backlash Blues by Nina Simone from the 1967 live album Nina Simone Sings the Blues. Presidents Reagan and Clinton make a brief appearance when we return to In the Name of the Family on Interchange. He told me to make sure that I sang this song everywhere I went. And I told him that I would he wasn't gonna be here to say it anymore my good friend so Mr. Backlash Backlash who do you think I am you raise my taxes and freeze my wages send my son to Vietnam you give me second class houses second class Welcome back. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest via Skype from Sydney, Australia is Melinda Cooper, author of Family Values, published by Zone Books. In it, Cooper insists that the breadth and depth of our neoliberal worldview was born of a backlash to the extra-parliamentary strength of the radical left in the 1970s, particularly the fear that sexual liberation was destroying the bonds, or shackles, of family values. Let's first welcome, on the right, Ronald Reagan, and on the American left, so-called, Bill Clinton. Is there a difference that makes a difference? When Langston Hughes died, when he died, he told me many months before, he said, Nina, keep on working till they open up the door. One of these days when you made it and the doors are open wide, Make sure you tell them exactly where it's at so they'll have no place to hide. So Mr. Backlash, Mr. Backlash, hear me now. I'm warning you, yeah, somehow, someway, yeah. I'm gonna leave you with the blue. My fellow Americans, Tomorrow is Father's Day, so naturally our thoughts turn to them and to the well-being of family life in America. Families have always stood at the center of our society, preserving good and worthy traditions from our past, entrusting those traditions to our children, our greatest hope for the future. Family life has changed much down through the years. The days when we could expect to live in only one home and hold only one job are probably gone forever. Perhaps we will not go back to the old family ways, 
but I think we can and should preserve family values. Nothing has done more to undermine our sense of common responsibility than our failed welfare system. This is one of the problems we have to face here in Washington in our new covenant. It rewards welfare over work. It undermines family values. It lets millions of parents get away without paying their child support. It keeps a minority, but a significant minority, of the people on welfare trapped on it for a very long time. I've worked on this problem for a long time, nearly 15 years now. As a governor, I had the honor of working with the Reagan administration to write the last welfare reform bill back in 1988. That was the opening of a radio address by Ronald Reagan on June 16, 1984, followed by a snippet out of Bill Clinton's 1995 State of the Union address. Now, back to Melinda Cooper. Uh, Why is the left talking about neoliberalism uh, today? Why did it take so long? Um, Why is so much of uh, the left's discussion of neoliberalism uh, so naive? (laughs) I I think what the left is doing at the moment is asking itself what went went wrong, what what is um, ailing us right now. So we're kind of in a moment of diagnosis. Again, I think that's why the focus on family is is a is a very good one, right? It's one of the those sort of uh, social valuations that we don't seem able to escape. Uh, the, mm. way, the way in which it frames our understanding of how we live our lives. Um, and we, we even imagine, when we talk about paternalism, you know, we imagine, again, the state as a family, you know, the, the state as a familial actor as well, uh, a, a tough father sometimes. Uh, it's, I don't know how often we, we call the state a mother unless it's to call it a nanny state and, and mock it. Even though, you know, paternalism is mocking it as well, you know, or trying to show its negativity. But uh, and the sexism that, that's rampant in these ideas is also clear. Uh, and that goes hand in hand with this discussion also. Family itself is a sexist or a uh, hierarchically male-dominated construction. And so I think it's a brilliant way to, to think about it, you know, how the, the neoliberals chose this particular uh, locus, right, to sort of to, to create... Uh, ways in which you think, you know, to, to, to stick you with those, those particular things as being the ways in which we scaffold our very being and our economics, uh, our, our livelihoods, et cetera, are still structured around that kind of organization. So tell us how we get the, so, so you already did, you actually already did. And I, I should have started there, um, with the powerful left of the sixties, right? The powerful radical nature of, um, social unrest and uh, social awareness to say, uh, and maybe this is again how the neoliberal theorizers and policymakers experience this as well to say, this powerful radicalism is blowing up, right? The entire Absolutely. social structure. And Absolutely. that's going to change everything. Yeah, and the absolutely. people that are in power now will no longer be in power. The way that we have wealth will change. And that means their lives would change too. Right? It, it had changed. Yes, it yes, had yes, changed. yes. So, you know, 
we talk about this period as one of unmitigated crisis, and you even find uh, commentators on the left accepting this diagnosis of the 1970s as a so-called crisis of inflation. What, what was happening? Wages were inflating. Asset prices, wealth, uh, was being eroded by rising consumer prices and wages. The wealthiest households uh, were losing wealth because the kinds of uh, 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 assets they, they held, bonds, um, for example, treasury bonds, uh, were losing uh, value. Um, they, they just couldn't be exchanged uh, for the same amount of money. And so, you know, uh, Thomas Piketty's uh, statistical data makes this very clear. The 1970s was the most equal decade in American history. Mm-hmm. And then it reverses in 1980. And yet everyone, even commentators on the left, have somehow accepted this story that the 1970s was a period of crisis. It was a period of crisis for uh wealth holders. Neoliberals were were running scared in this period. And the reason why I'm interested in this particular period of neoliberalism, what I call mature American neoliberalism, it be, is because it 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 um, becomes something very different during this period. It's on it's on the back foot and then on the counterattack. Hmm. And it radicalizes its critique of the welfare state. We're stuck back in that space of radical freedom, which is, is again, I think, most evident in radical feminist movements that, again, destroy this male-centric idea of family. And these responses are all morally focused on containing that change. Yeah, I mean, part of my argument is that... uh, there's a lot of the temporality of neoliberalism and the backlash of the 1970s that is incomprehensible unless you recognize that it was specifically a reaction against the the extension of sexual freedom to welfare law. Mm. This was what it was about. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, why was this so uh, dangerous? Why why was it interpreted as the kind of uh, the very driving force of inflation? Because this was a minimal uh, social welfare program, less than 1% of the federal budget. Why was it so dangerous? Because it meant that women who were not attached to a man were being granted a right to sexual freedom that had been introduced in, in the family law, in family law for the middle class, uh, but had been unthinkable uh, within welfare law, hmm. which is someone has called this the, the family law of the poor. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Melinda Cooper joins us to discuss the rhetorical and political uses of family values by both neoliberals and social conservatives, closer to a same sex union than we might suppose. Guys like me, we had it made. Those were the this again is sixties and seventies are 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 being refashioned in my as we speak right into these periods that we need to go back to uh, not in a nostalgic way but in a way to to see the strength of 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 things that can be done whether it changes things for the better or not is of course anyone anyone's particular uh, guess but you you've pointed out the strength of the left. And the strength of of these this this kind of 
ability to show or to, I guess, have people, the population, the people who are interested in making their life different from these particular structures that they've been stuck in, um, mm. to give them opportunities to not be stuck in those structures. And so um, these laws become dangerous because they allow further erosion of those structures. A lot of interesting change in family law in the, in the 60s and 70s, family law proper, um, which really only applies to mo- to people who have a bit of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so you ha- you get no fault divorce. You get um, you know the 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 distinction between legitimate and illegitimate children no longer means anything. Cohabitation is recognised, um, and then you get uh, uh, these Supreme Court cases which recognise this uh, kind of very. Uh, strange new uh, right to sexual privacy, uh, which means that the state does not have the right to intervene in your decisions regarding uh, contraception, uh, this kind of thing. These are uh, um, um, left reactions to criminalization of homosexuality and things of that nature. This kind of thing. So there's a Griswold and, God, I forget the exact dates, Griswold and then Ivanstadt. Um, so there's this very strange new constitutional right to sexual freedom, you know, fairly limited in nature, but at the time it was a real kind of uh, shift. The, the fact that it's recognized as a constitutional right is also interesting. And then you have these uh, public interest lawyers who are connected to the welfare rights movement and doing a lot of very interesting uh, work uh, in poverty law. And they do this thing that was under unthinkable to until then they they come up with this idea that okay if we're doing if we're doing this with family law for people who have you know a a bit of an income why doesn't this apply to people on welfare uh why would we not uh, uh recognize the same rights to sexual freedom why are these uh public assistance programs in particular surrounded by these moral conditionalities that are completely out of step at the time um, and it, uh, it so happened that the Supreme Court at the time, the Warren Court and uh, many of the, the, the other federal courts uh, were um, fairly liberal at the time and uh, they had enormous success. And what they ended up doing was overturning all these vestiges of the poor law that were embedded into welfare programs for single mothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they um, basically overturned all these family responsibility rules that still existed uh, within these programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and they basically made it, uh, uh, you know, illegal to police the sexuality of these women, to force them to track down so-called absent fathers, this kind of thing. And, I mean, these were, you know, phenomenal legal victories, but... Uh, the reason why they were so successful is because the welfare rights movement on the ground was also very powerful. So you can have these legal victories where, you know, on the ground they don't translate, but uh, because there was such a kind of relay between uh, the, the, the poverty lawyers and the welfare rights movement, 
there was a kind of level of education among these women on welfare uh, that enabled them to contest uh, uh, these laws at the agency level. And so this was a time where in many states uh, welfare was at its most generous. I mean, it was never a generous program, but at its most generous and uh, relatively free of this moral policing that had always been part and parcel of uh, aid to families with dependent children. So for for a very short period, it was as if uh, this kind of very punitive uh, vestige of the poor law, this kind of welfare program for uh, single mothers was kind of elevated to the status of, uh, say, social security. It's time for our last break. This is Welfare Music by the Bottle Rockets off of the 1994 album The Brooklyn Side. This is a favorite of mine, especially the dig at Rush Limbaugh. More with Melinda Cooper when Interchange returns on WFHB. Quit school when she was 17. Senator on TV calls her welfare queen. Used to be daddy's little girl. Now she needs help in this mean old world. Buys cassette tapes in the bargain bin. Loves Carlene Carter and Loretta Lynn. Tries to have fun on a Saturday night. Sunday morning don't shine too bright. It's welfare music. Watch the baby dance to the welfare music. Will she ever stand a chance? But one ain't here still Chasing women and drinking beer Says nobody understands how he feels But that don't pay them monthly bills Angry fat man on the radio Wants to keep his taxes way down low Says there ought to be a law Angriest man you ever saw Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our final segment gets a little wonky, and by that I mean I asked Melinda Cooper to share a specific example of how neoliberals shape policy and actually twist welfare-oriented ideas and economics of public spending to support public well-being and fiscal health toward the private sector and the debt chains for families and individuals. In this case, human capital theory and student loans. And we'll close with a nod toward Nancy McLean's Democracy in Chains and how James Buchanan's Virginia School neoliberalism always seems to serve its moralism with a soup song of economic narrative. It's welfare music Watch the baby dance To the welfare music Will she ever One area where Friedman was highly influential, and I don't think it has been sufficiently recognized, is in higher education funding. So he was intervening in these debates in the 60s, actually before then, about so-called human capital investment. Human capital referred to education, healthcare, 
uh, all these domains that had been opened up by the welfare state, but which had hitherto been considered as uh, um, uh, things that you consume. So you consume consumer goods, so you consume education, you consume healthcare. And then uh, someone called Theodore Schultz came along. He worked at Chicago alongside uh, Gary Becker and Friedman, but he was actually a neo-Keynesian. And he put forward this argument that uh, health and education uh, are actually forms of capital. They're assets. Hmm. And because they're assets, if you invest in them, they will generate income. They will generate returns. Um, He saw them as national assets. This was very different to Friedman and Becker. And his argument was that the reason why American economic growth had been so strong at the beginning of the 20th century, and this this was inexplicable to economists, the reason it had been so strong was that during this period, people had increased their investment in education, um, inadvertently, you know, not for any particular reason or for, for different reasons. And that uh, the, the side effect of this is that uh, economic growth had uh, skyrocketed you know, after making this uh, connection, he said, well, actually, we can now deliberately uh, drive economic growth by getting the government to invest heavily in education and healthcare. So it was an argument in favor of public investment. Mm. So he actually, he managed to make an economic argument, a Keynesian economic argument for why, uh, first of all, the federal government should spend a lot of money on education at all levels. But secondly, why it was a great loss to, to American GDP if the government didn't invest in minorities such as women, the low income and African-Americans. And so Friedman and Becker jumped into this conversation, although we think of uh, human capital theory today as being neoliberal, but it was originally neo-Keynesian. They jumped into this conversation and said, yes, 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 of course, education is a, a, a stock of capital. It's an asset. If you invest in it, it will generate income. But it's not a national asset. It has no public or, or social interest. It's primarily an individual asset. Because if you look at people who say train to become a doctor, uh, you know, there's all these opportunity costs involved. They lose time. uh, uh, They can't work. They go to college. But in the end, they're compensated uh, in the form of higher wages, which function as a kind of return on investment. But they absolutely denied that there was any uh, kind of national social payoff to this. Who cares if there's if Americans are better educated? Uh, uh, the only people benefiting from this are individuals. You might have a you know a million individuals uh, benefiting from this, but that will be of no kind of general social uh, interest benefit. So they came along uh, very early on and basically kind of absorbed Schultz's arguments into uh, a neoliberal economic framework to say that, yeah, parents should invest more in their children's education. We should invest more, but this should be a familial investment. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Melinda Cooper joins us to discuss the rhetorical and political uses of family values by both neoliberals and social conservatives, closer to a same-sex union than we might suppose. Guys like me, we had it made. Those were the days. 
And they did recognize that there were equity issues and that if people came from a poor family, then they can't go to college. So uh, this is why I think there's an adaptive, flexible, kind of responsive sensibility to the neoliberals that needs to be kind of reckoned with. So they said, but we have the answer to that. Okay, if you come from a poor family, all you need to do is get a loan. Okay, so the problem we have now is that um, up until about the 80s, uh, you know, banks, private uh, lenders were very reticent to lend to students because they weren't earning a wage, you know, you don't know what you're getting yourself in, into. So they come along with all these proposals for creating, generating these liquid credit markets in student loans. Mm-hmm. Milton Friedman was actually responsible for designing one of the very early federal student loan programs, I think the GI loan program. Mm. By the time you get to the 60s and 70s, he's very outspoken that they're, really what we should be promoting is private student, student debt markets. We should not be uh, uh, encouraging public investment in higher education. He was very hostile toward the Higher Education Act of 1965. Um, so he was, you know, uh, beating his drum saying he was unpopular at the time because, of course, this was a very uh, popular mm-hmm. uh, program. But he said, I have a better alternative. Uh, and, you know, this is not an efficient uh, system. Basically, what the government is doing is using taxpayer money uh, to subsidize the higher earning power of these individual uh, graduates. And that's not fair to the ordinary taxpayer. He's always appealing to this right. uh, right. tax. One of the things you, I think you point out, too, is that this is a period where uh, again, the social ferment is taking hold also. And, and one of the arguments from the neoliberal side is that this free education, right, the, the, the ability to go to college for free uh, has created these, these anti-authoritarian students who don't have Absolutely. any tie to any fiscal tie, again, any fiscal chains to keep, them within, right. to keep them within this superstructure that we'd like to keep going. So they were against it because, again, it changed, uh, not only changed the an economic situation, but changed the moral situation. Exactly. And this is how you see that the economic and moral arguments when it comes to family responsibility are so intricately tied together. They just cannot be separated. Mm. So this this argument you're referring to, you you will have read about it in Nancy McLean's book too, Mm -hmm. where she's talking about James Buchanan, uh, who was a student of Friedman's, and Nicholas uh, Devitoglu, who wrote this book, Academia in Anarchy. And they were based at UCLA at the time, which was the economics department was a hotbed of Chicago School Neoliberalism. They were appalled by the student activism. And, I mean, the Virginia School Neoliberals are interesting because they are much closer to neoconservatives. They always have the moral argument is always there. It's a southern argument. That's what, yeah, I've I've learned a lot from Nancy (laughs) McClain. Yeah. Because... The differences between the Virginia School and the Chicago School are very interesting, and I couldn't quite articulate them, and she has kind of brought out that that context really well. So they, in this book, I mean, they're talking about the economic arguments, of course, and they're completely in tune with Friedman's arguments, uh, but also, yeah, when when 
when uh, students are going to college funded by the state, they no longer have to rely on parents, then this is generating this anti-authoritarianism, liberating them from their kind of moral dependence mm-hmm. on parents mm-hmm. and therefore inciting this disrespect for authority at all levels. Right, it's beautiful. And, it is beautiful. <laughs> Again, they make avert something that's always implicit in Friedman. Um, so Friedman, you know, was unpopular uh, for very long, but once again, it's Ronald Reagan, a very right, you know, far to the right of the Republican Party, who picked up these outlier ideas as early as the late 1960s. So he he hated the the Berkeley student protesters. Um, he met a lot of his uh, campaign uh, his, his campaign speeches were about you know crushing not only the Berkeley student protesters but the academics who were supposedly supporting right. them. And he, he leveraged uh, Milton Friedman's ideas and he tried to introduce, reintroduce uh, tuition fees. He did that in a very kind of um, uh, nominal kind of way because he, he managed to reintroduce quite small fees. But apparently by the end of the 1980s they had so inflated that, you know, you could no longer really speak of uh, free public education. So he gradually imported uh, Milton Friedman's ideas. Mm. And he was he was using the ideas in, in his speeches. It was, you know, that the economic and moral arguments were indistinguishable. So he very much uh, drew on the Virginia School and Chicago School arguments. Mm. Melinda Cooper, thanks for joining me on Interchange. Thank you very much. That's our show. Can't help myself. We'll close with Those Were the Days. Theme song to All in the Family. Performed by Archie and Edith, Carol O'Connor and Gene Stapleton. Lyrics by Lee Adams and music by Charles Strauss. Guys like me, we had it made. Those were the days. Didn't need no welfare state. Thanks to Melinda Cooper for her great work on what she calls the mature neoliberalism, which was spawned by the white male fear of social and economic freedom for other types of people. Go figure. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Special thanks to Rebecca Sheldon for her editing advice. Though if you have complaints, that's on me. Bryce Martin is our studio engineer, and our executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for Counterspin followed by the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. $50 paid the rent. Freaks were in a circus tent.